Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. We are so excited that you joined us today. Our lead pastor, Pastor James Lair, is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among He's standing here. Verse 8 is where we pick up. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it. The Lord Almighty says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Joshua was the high priest, and his associates were fellow priests. And Joshua and these other priests served a symbolic purpose in this vision. And many of Zechariah's visions included an abundance of symbols and signs that have to be interpreted. And in this case, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says... Joshua and his priestly companions were symbolic of things to come. In their official priestly cleansing from sin, they prefigured the future cleansing of the nation Israel. This future cleansing was linked with the coming of the sin remover, who was given three messianic titles, my servant, the branch, and the stone. We're going to break down each of these titles. Remember, Joshua had been cleansed of his filthy clothes, And this was symbolic of all of God's people being cleansed from sin. As I shared last week, God loves to forgive. All that's required is that we repent. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just amazing what God can do. No matter what we've done, if we repent, if we confess our sin, God loves to forgive us. He's just waiting to forgive people. Isn't that amazing? He's got all this forgiveness waiting. If people will only ask, if they'll only turn from their ways, God is there to forgive. And he will cleanse us from our sin immediately. It's gone. And much of the prophecy of this prophecy is revealing the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And in his first messianic title, number one, Jesus is the servant. Now, this is, this is amazing because you've got to understand, Jesus is the Son of God. 
He's the creator of the universe. He is Lord of all. He is King of kings. And yet Jesus came as a suffering servant. Remember, there are two types of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. The, the becoming of the Messiah as a suffering servant, the coming of the Messiah as a conquering king. Everybody wanted him to come and overthrow Rome, but he had to first come as the suffering servant, and someday he is going to come as the conquering king. But Jesus has always been and always will be the Son of God, and he has all the power and the glory and the majesty of the Lord. In Philippians it said that he emptied himself of those things and humbled himself and became a man. It's amazing, the creator, your creator, became part of his creation and died for his creation to save them. There's no God like this. It's amazing. It was one of the truths that convinced C.S. Lewis to turn from being an atheist to being a believer in Jesus Christ. It was the fact that the creator would die for his creation. This was a model for us, Jesus coming as a servant. He came humble, born in a manger. This is why we celebrate this season. You see, we're not called to rule. We're called to serve. The world, it's all about ruling and being in power and having the authority, but that's not the way of the kingdom of God. The way of the kingdom of God is very different than the way of this world. This world says you, you crawl out, you step on people's backs, you stab them in the back, you do whatever it is to get ahead, you take charge, you rule with an iron fist. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. And we see this in Matthew chapter 20. Now, let me set up the story. James and John, two of the 12 disciples, they're brothers. And they wanted to be put in charge of things. When Jesus came in, into his kingdom, they still thought he was going to overthrow the Romans. They didn't realize it was a spiritual kingdom. It will be a literal kingdom someday. And so they got their mama, they got their mama to go to Jesus and ask, can you elevate my sons, one on your left hand and one on your right? Give me a break. You put your mama up to that? And, you know, here's, here's their mother coming and, oh, will you, my two little angels, two little angels, it doesn't really say that, but let's, you know, they're mama's boys, you can tell. And yet they were called sons of thunder, James and John, you know why? Because they wanted to bring lightning down on everybody. If anybody disagreed with him, they wanted to just to go up and smoke. And so they're called sons of thunder and, and they come to, they get their mama to do their bidding to go ask Jesus to promote them above the other ten disciples. And guess what? As usually happens, the other ten found out. And they were none impressed. Look at Matthew 20, 24. When the other ten disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. I can imagine later Peter putting one of them in a headlock, you know, giving him a noogie. Jesus continues, he called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came 
and he gave his life. Jesus was Lord of the universe, and yet he came as a servant. We should have the same heart. That's what's unique about Christianity. We haven't haven't been called to rule over people and have all this authority. We've been called to serve. We're to have a servant's heart. In fact, you're not qualified to lead until you've learned to serve. In the kingdom of God, it's very different. There's so so many paradoxes. The first shall be last. If you want to be exalted, you've got to humble yourself. And so if we want to lead in the kingdom, we must first learn how to be a servant. Every leader in the church must always have the heart of a servant. No matter how high you go in any any, uh, type of leadership, whether it's just a parent or a president, we are to always have the heart of a servant. We are to always have that humility. And if we don't have that humility, if we don't have the heart of the service of a servant, then we will fall. We will lose our step. Next, Zechariah unveils Jesus with another messianic title. Number two, Jesus is the branch. At first blush, this doesn't sound like an apt title for Jesus. Jesus is the branch. He's a, what is that? A stick. You know, what's that supposed to mean? But there's meaning behind all of this. They represent things. And the meaning of the branch is different than the significance of the servant. Jesus is going to fulfill these different roles, first as the servant, but then as the branch. And the New Living Translation Study Bible Notes says this distinction. Servant and branch are both titles for the Messiah. As servant, the Messiah obeys God's will by becoming a sin offering so that many may be made righteous. The branch is a metaphor for kingship that identifies the Messiah as David's descendant. And so you've got the servant humble, the suffering servant, but then you have the branch like the staff of a king ruling and reigning. Jesus is both. And in fact, Jesus is referred to as the branch in many places in the Old Testament, not just here in in Zechariah. For example, let's look at Isaiah 11, verse 1 and verse 6. Isaiah prophesies, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, which is the father of King David. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And this is what will happen when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The Bible speaks of a millennial reign of Christ. After the great tribulation, Jesus will come and rule and reign on the earth. Satan will be bound. He'll have no power. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more disease. And for a thousand years, you you can read it in Revelation 20, Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. And what's amazing, the millennial reign of Christ will be so peaceful that even the animals will get along with each other. Even the animals will get along with us. This is going to be awesome, the thousand-year reign of Christ where there's true peace and even the animals get in the act. Now, can you imagine? We are actually going to be able to have wolves, leopards, and lions as pets. Just like a cat and a dog, we're going to have lions and leopards. Now, 
I don't know about y'all, but sometimes people have some strange pets. You know, not every animal is, can be made into a pet, <laughs> but we can sure try. You know, there are folks that like snakes as pets. I'm sorry, they just don't cuddle well. Well, unless they're a constrictor, then they cuddle too well. <laughs> but my mom had some strange pets when she was growing up. Her dad was an old gold prospector. And he always thought he would strike it rich. He never did, but he got just enough to survive. And so they lived way out in the middle of nowhere, Arizona, on the border of Mexico. In fact, my mom's two youngest siblings grew up speaking Spanish and English, bilingual. In the one-room schoolhouse, the whole nine yards. I mean, that was their life. And so they didn't have the luxury of living in town or being able to have fancy pets. So they made pets of what hung around. My mom had a raccoon for a pet. Now, that would be interesting, having a raccoon, because they got the opposable thumbs, right? They can get into anything. But not only did she have a raccoon for a pet, at another time, she had a skunk as a pet. And this thing was not de-stinkified, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it had all the parts, you know, and I don't think it ever sprayed them, but it was a pet. A skunk is a pet. Think about it. In the, in the millennial reign, we can pet a skunk. Finally, we've all wanted to all of our lives. And now we can. We again see Jesus referred to as the branch in Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So again, Jesus is referred to as the branch and he's in the line, the kingly line of David. This is why the genealogies in the, in the Gospels are so important. They trace the line of Jesus back to King David because there's so many prophecies that the Messiah would come from the kingly line of David, and Jesus did. Again, we see the branch as a metaphor for the reign of Jesus as a king in the royal line of David. So we see that Jesus is the servant. And Jesus is also the branch. He rules and reigns. Next, Zechariah shows number three, Jesus is the stone. Again, this may be puzzling at first. Comparing Jesus to a rock. But it's a special kind of rock. Jesus is also referred to this title other places in the Old Testament. But also in the New Testament, he is called a special stone. And when you compare the Old Testament references, even the stone that Moses struck and water flowed out of, the, out of the rock, many believe that represented Jesus Christ as well as the stone. But we see Peter pull this all together. He takes several Old Testament prophecies about the stone and he pulls them together in 1 Peter 2.6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The cornerstone was the most important stone, the most important rock in the wall. It was the foundation stone on which all the other stones were supported so the cornerstone was vital 
It was the most important stone in a building or in a wall. The capstone is a little different. The capstone went on top. It was high and exalted. It was seen. It was beautiful. The capstone was on top. Jesus is both the cornerstone, the rock and the foundation of our faith. And he's also the capstone, the one that's high and lifted up and that we glorify. All of this is representative of Christ. Jesus is the stone of strength to you and me. He is the rock that we can hold on to. Amen. We can hold on to that rock. We build our faith on the rock, not the sand. We build it on the rock of Jesus. And if we build our faith on the rock of Jesus, we will stand. The storms are going to come. doesn't matter who you are or where you are. The storms of life will come. I want you to understand, at any given time in our church service, somebody is here who's desperately hurting. They're in the storm of their life. And we need to be mindful of that. That we may be doing good, but others are struggling. They're, they're barely here. They barely made it here today because of the weight that they're bearing. And so we know that this is why it's so important that we pray. And we pray for one another. Because people are carrying burdens we know nothing about. And we'll all be that person that bears a burden at some point in our life, won't we? And it can be very lonely and very fearful to walk in a church where you think everybody has it together except you. And we know that's not true. But I'm one, I, I've always felt a, a heavy responsibility in the last five years of pastoring to always bring hope because there's someone out there that's hopeless. And if it's just one person that I reach and give just a, a sprinkle of hope to get them through the next day, then it's worth it. It's why I speak about these things, the real life circumstances and situations that people face. How I many you know God's word can answer those problems and questions of life? It, Jesus is the rock. We've got to stand on this rock. He's immovable. He won't shift under our feet. But for those who don't believe, he is a stumbling stone. For those who don't have faith in Christ, they trip over him. Instead of hold on to him, they stumble. We see this described in Wearsby Bible Commentary. At his first advent or coming, Jesus was a stumbling stone to Israel who rejected him. But he became the foundation stone for the church. The stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. And so he became this cornerstone of the church, of Christianity. At his second advent, or his second coming, he will smite the kingdoms of the world and establish his glorious kingdom. And then this. The seven eyes on the stone probably speak of our Lord's omniscience. Seven eyes. I mean, I'm telling you what, Zechariah is having some wild visions. Not only does he see a rock, it's got seven eyes on it. Now, some translate it as seven facets, like a gemstone, but it's probably more accurately seven. There's, there's seven eyeballs on that stone. That's weird. But it's what he saw. And, there's, and it represents something. Every one of these represents something. And so, either way, what does this mean? If it's facets or eyes, there are meanings behind 
the seven, the number seven. I mean, you know, there are certain numbers in the Bible that are very important. Now, I know some people can go crazy with numerology. You know what I'm saying? The number 79 represents, you know, no, it's just 79. But there are a few numbers in the Bible that really have depth to them. The number three, the number 12, and certainly the number seven. Seven is a, is a number of perfection. It's a number of completeness. And so we see this in the commentary, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. They say, upon one stone shall be seven eyes, namely the watchful eyes of Jehovah's care ever fixed upon it. The eye is the symbol of providence, seven of perfection. And so the seven eyes or facets represents the Lord's sovereignty and omniscience and perfection. He knows everything. And we see this description later in Zechariah. Now, Zechariah 4.10, I can't wait to get there, but I won't steal my own thunder. I'll just address a little bit of part of it. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel? We'll, we'll talk about him. There, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. God's looking. God's aware. The Lord knows everything that is going on in this world. He is in control. I know the world's going nuts. It's a world gone mad. It's on fire. But I'm telling you what, God is fully aware and ultimately, God is in control. And these things must happen. They've been prophesied. They will be revealed. And not only is the Lord aware of what's going on in the world, he's aware of what's going on in your world, your life. You know, sometimes it's just helpful knowing that someone knows. But God not only knows, he is working all things together for good. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're struggling with. He is aware and he cares. He is your rock. He sees what you're going through. And we see this same seven eyes in Revelation 5, 6. You see, I always want to balance scripture with scripture. If it's said once, I want to see where it's said another time. Then we get the full meaning that way. You get the context. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. We know the lamb represents Jesus. Standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What? Now we got seven horns. Now we got seven spirits. What does that mean? We'll dig deeper into that later on in Zechariah. I promise we'll get there. But for our understanding, Jesus is the stone. He is the rock. The stone that has seven eyes on it. But not only that, it has an inscription. This word in Hebrew means, means to engrave or open up. And so there is an, inscript, an inscription on it. The Lord will engrave something on this stone. And no one knows for certain what this inscription means or reads, but here is an educated guess. From Thomas Constable's notes on the Bible. The inscription engraved on the stone rep remains unexplained, but many of the early church fathers and interpreters ever since have taken the engraving as a preview of Messiah's wounds. So Jesus was the rock 
that was wounded for our transgressions. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. This has a powerful connotation. This, this rock that's engraved, if it means his wounds, I, I want you to, to claim this verse for yourself, for your family. Stand on this word. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Do you need, anybody need someone to carry those sorrows? Jesus can. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. As if we thought he did something wrong. But no, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus died on the cross, not for his sins, he was sinless. He died on the cross for our sins. And look at what it cost him. What our sins, our forgiveness cost him. He was pierced for our transgressions when he was nailed to the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. His punishment brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. That engraving, that inscription, those wounds we can ask for our healing because of his wounds. Now, we don't always understand why God heals the way he does. And I've shared with you before, God heals different ways. He heals medically. Nothing wrong with going to the doctor. Nothing wrong with taking medicine. We're not weird, okay? We, we, you know, we follow instructions. But God can heal medically because there's many things out there medically that can heal cancer and all those things. God heals Sometimes miraculously, love that. And then God heals by having us go home to be with Jesus. How many of you know that's the greatest healing of all? No more sorrow, no more pain. It was tough doing Roger's funeral yesterday, but I know he's with the Lord. The Lord didn't heal him physically, but he took him home. And the Lord can also heal us emotionally and mentally. How many know that mental illness should not have a stigma? It's a, it's a very real thing that people struggle with. And we can say, Jesus, by your wounds, I am healed. And we can claim that for ourselves. Whatever your ailment, whatever you need healing from, we can ask, because of the engraving on the stone, the wounds, by his wounds we are healed. The inscription on the stone may symbolize those whip marks on Jesus' back. And because of those wounds, we can believe God for our healing. Another messianic title, number four, is Jesus is the Savior. God would remove the sin of the entire nation of Israel all at once. In the New Living Translation Study Bible, it says the removal of Israel's sin in a single day alludes to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. If you read Leviticus 16, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the entire nation, one day a year. It foreshadows Christ's crucifixion when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world for good. Jesus is the only Savior who can take away our sins. John 1.29 
shows us the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the Savior. And when he returns to set up his kingdom on this earth, this is what will happen. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. Now, what does that mean? Sit under... You're going to invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree. How many have a fig tree? We're in trouble. What does it mean? Again, the New Living Translation Study Bible. The day is shorthand for the day of the Lord. The day of God's intervention in history when God will judge the wicked, deliver the righteous, and restore creation. In the millennial reign of Christ, there will be unparalleled peace like the earth and humanity has never known. This is further described in Micah 4.3. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. There it is again. And no one will make them afraid. For the Lord God Almighty has spoken. When God speaks, we don't have to be afraid. I love how the Message Bible translates Zechariah 3.10. At that time, everyone will get along with one another. Wow, won't that be novel? With friendly visits across the fence. Friendly visits on one another's porches. Remember when you used to have a front porch? Remember when you used to even know your neighbors, let alone talk to them over the fence? Well, that day is coming when Jesus will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. There will be peace because Jesus is our peace. Would you bow your heads with me today? If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And we come into this season of Christmas and Thanksgiving and it reminds us of what God did for us. He so loved the world that he gave his son the greatest gift of all. If you have never given your life to Christ, I want to give you a chance to do that today. Or maybe you have, but you know you've walked away, you've drifted away from the Lord, and it's time to come back home. I want to pray for you. So if you want to give your heart to the Lord, or if you want to come back to the Lord today, would you just raise your hand? Anyone in this place? With every head bow and every eye closed, I just want to ask one more thing. If you're one of those people here today that are carrying a heavy burden, that you walked into this place and you're sorrowful, or you're here and you need a miracle, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. You need... You need that. You're bearing a burden nobody may even know. Amen. You can put your hands down. Jesus saw your hands raised. That was your step of faith. And I want you to know God's going to meet you. And you can say, Lord, by your wounds I am healed. However, however the Lord chooses to heal you, by his wounds you are healed. Father, I pray for those who raise their hands. They're carrying a weight 
that, may, many, that few people may even know. But you know. You're the all-seeing God. You know everything about the world and you know everything about us. And Lord, we know that you're working. You're working things for good. And so Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that you would bring healing, body, soul, spirit. Lord, that they would cast their cares and their sorrows on you because you carried our sorrows. You carried our sin on that cross. Lord, just strengthen them. May they hold on to that rock. May they stand on the rock, Lord, no matter what happens. They will stand on the rock of Jesus. In your precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? In a few moments, I'm going to dismiss, and I would just ask if you would hold your conversation to the foyers, because there are people that will want to remain and worship or would like to receive prayer. Our elders are coming at this time. If you need someone to pray with you, then I encourage you to, to hang around. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thank you for tuning in today. We are so excited that you joined us. If you chose to say yes to Christ today, we would love for you to text the word born again, all one word to 94090. By doing so, you will receive more information on your next steps in following Christ. We meet every Sunday at 8.30 and 11 a.m. right here in Bakersfield, California at 4901 California Avenue. We would love for you to join us in person. Also, we have a live stream service at 11 a.m. every Sunday morning. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like more information about Bakersfield First Assembly of God, you can search us on the internet at bakersfieldfirst.com. Thank you for joining us today and have a blessed week.